This podcast is not meant to be professional advice of any kind. It's meant to be informative and entertaining. If you make any changes to your life, see the appropriate professional before you do so. Welcome to Super Age. My name is David Stewart. I am the founder of Ageist and your host on the Super Age show. We talk about how to live healthier, how to live longer, and how to be happier. And who doesn't want that? Today's show is brought to you by Inside Tracker, the dashboard to your inner health. Go to insidetracker.com slash ages, save 20% on all their products. Today's show is also brought to you by Element, L-M-N-T, my favorite electrolyte mix. It's what I put in my water in the morning, and it's what I put in my water at the gym. Go to drinkelement.com slash ages and receive a free eight-serving sample pack with any purchase. Today's show is also brought to you by Timeline Nutrition with their breakthrough product, MitoPure, the first clinically tested urolithin A supplement, which is showing tremendous results for mitochondrial health. Go to TimelineNutrition.com slash Ageist, use the code Ageist at checkout, and save 10% off your first order of MitoPure. Welcome to episode 120 of the Super Age Podcast. This will be dropping on February the 8th, 2023. This week, we're coming to you from my old hometown of... New York City, New York, New York. Uh, we are currently in the financial district, uh, renamed FIDI in lower Manhattan. And I got to say, FIDI is surprisingly great. Um, it's actually cool. And there are all these little like sort of mom and pop shops and people opening up little restaurants and cafes. And it's, I don't know what to say. It is a completely, completely different vibe than the last time I was here when it was known as the financial district. And it was filled with a lot of, you know, really jacked up folks barking into cell phones. Um, you don't see them anymore. You see like people who live here walk their dogs. So um, yeah, pro tip, if you're going to stay in New York, um, it's kind of cool down here. We're staying at this long-term rental uh, it's like a one bedroom with a kitchen. It's nice. It's uh, the company is called Sonder, and only good things to say about them. Um, they do they do a good job. So um, here we are in New York, which is a very different place from where we've been the last few months, which is Park City, Utah. And I miss my mountains. I miss the snow. I miss all the stuff that goes with that. But it's also like super nice to be here. I mean, my gosh, it's. 20 minutes in a subway from where we are now to up to the Guggenheim where we saw the Alex Katz show and we walked, you know, a couple blocks south and I saw the Avedon mural show, which is kind of great, small, but kind of great, interesting. Um, and then, you know, had a lunch up there and it's 20 minutes back down here. And, you know, as much as I like Los Angeles, one of the difficulties of Los Angeles, and there's many charms to Los Angeles, I don't want to put it down, but one of the difficulties is transportation. So, you know, kind of anywhere you want to go outside your neighborhood, it's an hour. And then it's an hour back. So you can't really do multiple things in a day. It's You get to do like one thing. Whereas in New York, things are so dense and the subway, which, you know, has its issues, I have to say, it's, you know, there's a lot more sort of crazy homeless people than I remember in the past. But other than that, um, I think the subway is a national treasure. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Like you can you can get around this city 
it, it, it's just so easy. Maybe it's just because I'm, I'm used to, you know, I've been living in car cultures for a long time and you don't have to drive a car here. So, you know, if you're on the subway, I can like, I can read something. I can look at other people. I'm, that's the other thing. I'm, you're just like around all these different kinds of people. They speak different languages. They do different things. They look different. They eat different things. And they've all sort of got this kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, attitude, but in like a good way. Like it's, it's cool. So I'm very much enjoying my time here. And one of the good things about where I'm staying here at um, this Sonder place is they, they've got a, actually a pretty good gym. I mean, it's in the basement. There are no windows and, you know, it's not ideal, but um, it's kind of great. So I was actually there just before we started this podcast for about an hour. And right now what I'm doing is I'm sipping on some water with some element in it, LMNT, because I can feel my electrolytes are a little low. And one of the things I've learned is that if my electrolytes are low, there's a really easy solution. Just drink element and I'll feel better. Um, this is actually one of the big discoveries I made last year was that that's sort of like sluggish brain not working feeling from maybe working out or from the sauna is actually just loss of hydration and electrolytes. And I replace them with my favorite electrolyte mix, Element, spelled L-M-N-T. If you go to drinkelement.com, that's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com slash ageist, and you get a free eight-serving sample pack with any purchase. This week on the show, we're going to talk one of my favorite topics, which is sleep. And we've got Wendy Troxell on the show this week. We profiled her in Aegist a few weeks back, and I wanted to bring her on the Super Age podcast to talk specifically about sleep. And her area of expertise, which I think is so interesting, is the idea that sleep is actually a social activity, which means that we, most of us, sleep with others around and the social effect of us sleeping well or not sleeping well is profound. So I, I think that that's really interesting. And I know that sleep is, you know, as I mentioned, sort of a topic of fascination bordering on obsession with me. And I think it's troublesome for a lot of people. So we're going to have Wendy on in just a minute and we're going to talk about the social aspects of sleeping. Today's show is brought to you by Timeline Nutrition and their breakthrough product, MitoPure. MitoPure is a urolithin A product, and urolithin A is what's known as a postbiotic. In other words, we can make it in our guts sometimes. The problem is that only something like 40% of people have the right bacteria in their guts to make the conversion from a food product to urolithin A. Now, there's more to this that ability to make that conversion declines with age. And even if you can make the conversion, you would have to take, drink a tremendous amount of pomegranate juice to get enough urolithin A. I have seen dozens of studies out there on the effects of urolithin A. It has a very positive effect on overall health because it does something called mitophagy. What it's doing is it's essentially cleaning up and revitalizing your mitochondria, which are the energy centers to all of our cells, with the exception of blood cells. I have noticed a marked improvement for my muscles to recover from any kind of activity. And I've been hearing this 
from some of my friends who also take MitoPure. And, you know, this is just me. I mean, this is the N of one, but I swear my memory is much better than it was before I was taking this. So there may be a cognitive effect there. I don't know. I'm just, I'm not taking a study on this. I'm just saying that's what I'm feeling. But I can tell you for sure there are studies out there on muscle response. Timeline is offering listeners of this podcast 10% off your first order of MitoPure. Go to timelinenutrition.com slash ageist and use the code ageist to get 10% off your order. That's T-I-M-E-L-I-N-E-N-U-T-R-I-T-I-O-N dot com slash ageist. Maybe check out their starter pack, which has all three formats. And let me know what you think. And just a quick reminder, um, after our conversation with Wendy, which is, I'm going to start in just a second. Um, at the end, you know, we've been doing this thing called Try This, which is just a little tidbit, a thing that, you know, you can easily incorporate into your life that may make your life a little easier, a little happier, and you might live a little longer. So Try This coming up right after our conversation with Wendy Troxel. Hey, Wendy, how are you? I'm great. So great to be with you. Thanks for having me. I am so happy you're here. Um, you are an expert on something that I'm, what's the level beyond passion? Obsessed? Um, with <laughs> sleep. <laughs> I'm a sleep obsessive. <laughs> um, and you are an expert on sleep. And you have a new book called Sharing the Covers, Every Couple's Guide to Better Sleep, um, which I read and I thought was awesome. And Thank we're going to talk about that uh, in a second, and then all of your research and your work. But um, tell people a little bit about yourself. Great. Yeah. So I am a clinical psychologist by training, um, and um, I have specialized in sleep medicine um, really throughout my career. Uh, so that means I spend most of my waking hours thinking about and studying sleep and treating individuals um, and couples and families who present with sleep-related problems. So the thing that I found super interesting about your book, and I've read a lot of sleep books, yours is really unique in that you're talking about the social aspects of sleep. And I don't think until I read your book, I hadn't really thought of sleep as a social thing. Yeah. Um, but tell me about that. Yeah. So that is actually one aspect that has really sort of distinguished my work from the very early stages of my foray into this area, you know, when we think about sleep, we tend to think about sleep as being this very individual behavior. I mean, people are very sort of uh, quick to name individual risk factors for sleep problems, whether it be their age or their sex or their race or ethnicity or their mental health, whatnot. We think about these individual level risk factors, and we tend to think about sleep as this individual isolated behavior. And in fact, throughout the history of sleep research, and sleep is actually, is actually a fairly young uh, field of science and medicine. Um, so for about the past 70 years, the way scientists have studied sleep has also tended to be at the individual level. So what we typically do in a sleep study, we bring an individual into the laboratory under very tightly controlled conditions, and we isolate them as much as possible. And yet, as we all know, sleep in the real world 
doesn't occur in that kind of vacuum, right? Sleep in the real world is often kind of messy and noisy and really for most people shared. In fact, two thirds of adults regularly share a bed with a bed partner. And yet here we have this, the bulk of the entire science of sleep has neglected to consider you know, how sleep is embedded in our, you know, social environments from our closest connections to now even we're beginning to recognize how sleep also it relates and uh, uh, intersects with the environments we live in and the neighborhoods and communities we live in, the policies under which we live. So it really is this social behavior. And that's sort of sort of how I kind of made my niche within sleep was really sort of putting to the forefront that we can't neglect to consider the social environment when we think about, you know, risk factors for sleep, as well as who is affected by, you know, our sleep, et cetera. I, I think I read in your book that 30% of our sleep out, uh, outcomes, I guess, I just our sleep. Our sleep, um, yeah. Our sleep, <laughs> right, um, is, are influenced by our partners. And I, I had just never even considered that. Is that like yeah, a guy so- thing? We just don't think about these things? No, it, it, it's it's a people thing. I mean, the world really, we have not, it's a relatively new construct to think about sleep as an interdependent behavior when shared with a partner, which again, most adults do. That's work from uh, colleagues of mine at the University of Surrey. And what they did was they, you know, using wrist actigraphy, which is, you know, research grade um, motion sensors, you know, sort of like sleep trackers, but for research and and measured people's sleep or wakefulness throughout the night. And they found found that sort of partners sort of were, you know, 30% of their sleep throughout the night really depended on what the other partner was doing. Now, anybody who lives with a spouse or partner and sleeps with them who snores or tosses and turns or steals the sheets will immediately tell you, oh, yeah, at least 30 percent of my sleep is affected by my partner, if not more. Um, But as a scientific community, um, we really haven't we've we've really neglected that critical factor. And, And there's this huge void in terms of how people think about sleep, you know, while neglecting the partner, there's uh, all sorts of misconceptions and ideas and beliefs about how couples should sleep together or not. And, you know, it's not really science-based for the most part. So uh, let's give us a rundown, um, like a menu of the bad stuff that'll, because some people just think that sleep is this thing that we sort of have to do when we're not like, you know, being ourselves and out there active in the world. But um, we know that sleep, not sleeping, has some real consequences. Could you give us a little menu of the bad stuff that can happen? Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we need to sort of disabuse pe- people of this tendency to think about sleep as this dead space, right? It is the thing that happens when sort of the lights go off and like, you know, activity productivity, health, functioning, everything happens only when sort of the lights are on in the brain. Well, that actually couldn't be further from the truth. Sleep itself is a highly active and dynamic state. Um, It is not just one sort of solitary, you know, state throughout the night, like a light switch going off. In fact, there's parts of the brain that are more active during sleep than during wakefulness. And so it's really important, first of all, to sort of understand Um, how dynamic sleep is to then be able to understand how 
vital it is to really every aspect of our health, our functioning, our productivity. So just to kind of give a few examples of kind of where, you know, sleep plays a role, we can think starting with the brain, uh, we know we now have really solid evidence um, demonstrating that um, sleep is critically important for our cognitive function, um, our memory, um, uh, sleep loss is associated with cognitive decline, even increased risk for um, Alzheimer's disease. Uh, We know it affects our concentration, our creativity, our ability to problem solve. Sleep is also profoundly linked with our mental health and our well-being, right? So, I mean, I think most of us have experienced this. If you're sleep deprived for, you know, many nights or chronically, you know, you're cranky and irritable. Um, And even further down uh, on the spectrum, we know that sleep disturbances can predict the onset of mental health disorders like depression, anxiety, even suicide. Then there's a whole litany of physical health consequences of of sleep loss, including increased risk of heart disease, diabetes. I mentioned Alzheimer's disease. Um, In fact, the American Heart Association has recently added sleep to its list of eight modifiable risk factors for the development of heart, heart disease alongside not smoking, getting enough physical activity and taking your blood pressure medication. So sleep is absolutely vitally important for our physical health, our performance. And then again, these are all individual level consequences. I also want to put out there, as I discuss a lot in my book, I'm sure you saw the relational effects of sleep loss. We know from, you know, both laboratory studies and um, so in-home observational studies of people, you know, over time, that when people are not getting the sleep they need, it really does affect um, critical aspects of their relational functioning. So under sleep-deprived conditions, people's communication skills suffer, they're more prone to conflict, they're less able um, to show um, empathy towards their partner so they can, they're less able to read their partner's emotions, which is really important in the context of relationships. Uh, They're more prone to anger, they're less able to emotionally regulate, So to collectively sleep loss, again, not only has profound individual consequences, but can really also set the stage for, you know, relationship strife and um, interpersonal problems as well, whether that be at home or in the workplace, though most of us know that our bad behaviors mostly come out um, to to the ones we love the most. So it's it's really the partner effects of sleep loss are, are, are quite significant. Um, as my wife will tell anyone, um, I, I turn <laughs> and my into, husband will tell you as well. <laughs> I turn don't, into a don't toddler. be around when she's not sleeping. Oh, it's terrible! <laughs> it's just <laughs> the whole whatever that like executive function that sort of controls everything else just goes to like I, I just become I, I become horrible. So, like a two-year-old, right? Like a two, you know? Exactly. Yeah, yeah like just, a two-year-old. We become raw. We're, our emotions are like palpable. It's yeah. less able to regulate. And in fact, studies have actually shown that as well, too, from a, a brain science perspective that under sleep-deprived conditions, you know, there, there's a reason we act like a toddler because the prefrontal part of the brain, the part of the brain that kind of reigns in the sort of, you know, jumping to, uh, you know, strong emotions and not being able to sort of regulate emotions, that becomes downregulated. At the same time, the amygdala response, which controls sort of our, our really strong um, emotions like um, anger, um, and, you know, that gets amplified. So you have this real tipping of the scales that, you know, can make you look like 
uh, tantruming two two year old when you're sleep deprived. Yeah, been there. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I have to say, <laughs> it's really embarrassing, but um, it's an easy solution. Just like go to sleep. Yeah, your sleep, right? Better, yeah. Yeah. I, I'll own it. I'm, I, I am not a fun person to be around, and that's one of the many reasons why I really do um, make getting adequate and good quality sleep a priority in my own life. Um, so, talk to, and this is something that I discovered in your book this uh, idea of the gender differences with sleep like for myself when i get into bed there's like a 10 minute window there between when i like get into bed and i read and i just say i'm going to sleep now and by now i mean like that moment (laughs) like i'm out (laughs) my wife however is very different um, she's like, oh, don't you want to talk about this, that, and the other? And no, I don't. I'm going to sleep right now. But then in the morning, I'm up. It's like, hey, what's going on? She's like, oh, don't talk to me. Um, but anyway, so <laughs> a personal story. Tell me about sort of the generalized gender differences. Yeah, it's really a fascinating area that we're, you know, there's still so much unknown about both gender um, and biological sex differences in sleep. And both actually matter because there are sort of, uh, you know, differences based on sort of, you know, biological sex characteristics and hormones um, that are related to sleep. We certainly know among women that there's a significant uptick in sleep problems, uh, for instance, um, during the menopausal transition. So there's clearly some hormonal role, but that's also a, a transition in life in sort of the life course. So there's also sort of a psychosocial component that relates to gender roles, um, but also just from a gender perspective and sort of men's and women's traditional roles in society, that also influences men and women's different sleep patterns. So for instance, uh, women are twice as likely to have insomnia as compared to men. Uh, That is, you know, insomnia is a clinical disorder characterized by difficulty falling asleep or difficulty staying asleep or poor unrefreshing sleep quality. And again, there's lots of sort of hypotheses about why that may be. It may be related to the fact, you know, sort of, again, these sociocultural roles that women as the traditional caregivers in society, um, you know, and women, I've talked to many, you know, will say, you know, once I had children, my sleep was never the same, right? Because they, you know, I'm never able to actually shut my brain off. And there might actually be an evolutionary basis for that, that sort of the need to still sort of scan the environment to be somewhat vigilant, even while asleep, um, may serve an evolutionary basis of women as the sort of traditional caregivers, caretakers, um, particularly for nighttime caregiving. On the other hand, men um, are more likely to other types of sleep disorders, um, including uh, sleep apnea. Um, And there's sort of a host of reasons for that, including um, men's behaviors, uh, men's sort of anatomy um, can um, um, lead to increased risk for apnea. But what's really interesting, particularly among heterosexual couples, is, you know, that when we have this pairing between the sex females who are statistically more likely to have poor, light, unrefreshing sleep, statistically more likely to be paired with the sex, a male who is more likely to be a snorer, 
um, or have sleep apnea. And that's that's a you know big topic of my book. It's a, something that comes up in conversation quite a bit uh, when people learn that I study couples in sleep is that pairing of sort of the, the, the sex that tends to suffer from insomnia more with the sex that you know, tends to be loud sleepers, that's where um, some common problems among couples sleeping together also occurs. So it's a really fascinating topic to see sort of men and women's differences. There's also differences in sort of preferred timing of sleep. Um, You know, one might be a night owl, one might be um, uh, more of a morning person. And that's also something that couples of all types often have to struggle with. So help me out on that. Say, um, well, first, let's do like the, the four sleep types, right? Um, so there's, they have like animal names, right? There's like. Yeah, that's a specific um, sort of uh, theory. Um, okay. Generally. <laughs> so I don't know the animal types. Uh, I, I th- yeah, I think. But we'll say like morning person and evening yeah, person. Yeah, but generally, scientifically, we have distinctions between, you know, we, we all fall, the, the term is a chronotype. So we mm-hmm. all have a chronotype. Um, some of us, uh, yeah, well, for, you know, and it's on sort of a bell curve. So most of us are actually sort of right in the middle. Um but there are, you know, sort of strong um, larks or morning types. Um, and then there are some people who are, you know, further on the spectrum um, of evening types and, you know, some very strong evening types. But again, most of us are sort of, you know, right in the middle. Um, but, you know, the, the distinction on the on the sort of extreme ends can be quite severe or, or quite disparate. Um, you know, so a, a strong morning type may, you know, struggle to stay awake past 8 p.m., but is awake and alert at 4 a.m., let's say, whereas an evening type um, or a strong evening type may struggle to fall asleep before 2, 3 a.m., and their natural wake-up time would be you know, closer to 11 a.m., you know, and so, but the thing is, we live in a society that tends to kind of idealize and um, being morning, a morning type, and we really sort of, society is structured towards morning people, um, and we tend to sort of ascribe sort of, you know, negative uh, sort of beliefs about evening types as if they're being lazy. And and yet this is really biologically based. Our chronotypes are about 50% genetically determined. So, you know, what often happens is in couples um, is that, you know, one person is more of a morning type, one person is more of an evening type, even not, not at the, you know, really far extremes. But, you know, they want to have the same sleep schedule because, you know, they love their partner and they want to spend, you know, their time sleeping together. Well, what that's essentially doing, let's say the evening person is now trying to go to bed at 9 p.m. or 10 p.m. even, that may be hours before their biological clock tells them they're ready for sleep. And so what ends up happening? They lie there in bed frustrated and awake, albeit with their partner, which was the goal because they wanted to go to bed together. But the lack of understanding that we don't get to just tell our chronotypes, you know, what time we, you know, would like to get sleepy. It's sort of like trying to overcome jet lag, right? You know, if you fly east and the time zone, you know, your internal clock says it's earlier than the local clock, you can't just make yourself get sleepy. And that's what happens when people try to sort of override their circadian preference in order to match their their spouse's preference. And, um, you know, that that usually 
leads to pretty poor sleep because you can't force yourself uh, to go to sleep when you're not sleepy. And it can happen happen in the reverse too. Um, but there's some really interesting things about that we also don't, I think, recognize enough of like how much the timing of our sleep is really driven by sort of these intrinsic rhythms, which we have less control over than we think. I mean, we can certainly adjust schedules, but it happens in very small increments and over time. Um, so it's it's a really fascinating area. So if someone had a dating profile, do you want to put in your chronotype? Because it sounds like if you, for as much as a morning person loves and night person, that's going to be like this intractable problem going forward. I mean, I would, again, mismatched couples, please do not despair. There is hope for you. There's absolutely ways to problem solve, but I totally agree. And um, that like, we are, I, I'm not aware of any dating app. I could be wrong. I haven't been on one, Um, but um, there was a time I, I, you know, at one point for research, I did sort of look into like, do common dating apps, ask about chronotype. And my understanding is they don't. And it's actually a really important aspect of our, of who we are as individuals. Again, it's not that, you know, a lark can't pair with an owl, but it would be good to know that. Um, Interestingly, statistically speaking, couples, uh, you know, are more likely to, or, or individuals are more likely to match pair with a person who has a similar chronotype. But that might be partly that like, Night owls are more likely to run into each other at a bar late night. You know, they're less likely to have the opportunity to meet an owl. But, you know, there are the exceptions where larks and owls do pair together. And um, I do think it's interesting that, like, you know, we don't sort of assess that critical aspect of our personality. And, And our circadian preferences do relate to things other than just our sleep. It relates to when we um, are most alert throughout the day, when we're happiest throughout the day, when we're interested in sex, like all these things that do matter in the context of a relationship. Again, our dating apps pretty much neglect to consider this. And I don't think it's sort of a standard part of the conversation as you're getting to know someone, you know, you know, are you more of a lark? Are you more of an owl? And I think it, you know, it, it, it's, it's worth knowing because then you can, if there are differences, at least, you know, that's knowledge and then you can problem solve and work around it. Um, so I'm, as I mentioned, sort of a sleep obsessive. Um, okay. and, and I go to really any length I can to maximize the amount of sleep I get per the amount of time I'm in bed. Um, right. So I would prefer to spend less time in bed and doing things, but um, maximum sleep. So I do things like, I wear these things called Bose sleep buds. I wear an eye mask. I, um, you know, take some um, magnesium before I go to sleep. Um, I wear this thing called an Apollo. (laughs) I do like everything, right? Um, But a lot of what I'm doing is I'm cutting down my, uh, and also the mattress. Like, um, I'm really picky about mattresses. Okay. like I don't, and the main thing about the mattress is yeah. the social aspect. I do not want the vibration to transmit from one side to the other. Like that's yes. like that's like a deal breaker for me. Yes, um, it's a huge, it's huge. <laughs> I, that's one of the features I recommend. Comfort is is individual preference, 
but things like mattress displacement, which refers to, you know, how does your bed partner's movements affect your side of the bed? That's huge. Um, and so that's a, a really important metric to look at. But even doing this, yeah, um, once in a while, so I like to sleep. My preferred sleep temperature is about 64. My wife considers that refrigeration. Um, so we sort of, you know, compromise at about 67. But sometimes what will happen is if she gets cold, she does this sort of like professional wrestling move. So she always sleeps on the left side of the bed. So the right arm extends out as far as possible, grabs covers and <laughs> rolls to the right, right? With a lot of power. And just mm -hmm. like suddenly, I don't have anything on me, and I'm like, yeah. and I bet she sort of like she might yes. like get yeah, the yeah, top yeah. under too. So the whole, <laughs> the whole, and and then it gets sort of like she does this like armbar lock thing with it, <laughs> and it's like, what? Are you, and I wake up, I was like, what are you doing? So um, this rarely happens. Um, my wife and I are very compatible with this generally, but assuming that this, because I think that like sometimes this sort of stuff is a problem. And I understand, you know, like here in America, we tend to like sleep in big beds and we sleep together because we think that's like the thing to do. Um, but in other places, that's not always the case, right? There are other solutions here. Yeah, there are. And, uh, you know, another sort of message of my book and um, something that I'm asked to comment about quite a bit is this um, sort of trying to get over these cultural prescriptions for how couples should sleep. And, you know, we have a lot of stigma in society about, you know, the marital bed and that it's the sign of, you know, sort of, you know, marital happiness and sex. And if a couple chooses to sleep apart, then, oh, you know, oh no, it means that there's something wrong with the relationship. Um, and what really reflects um, to me and why it's so important to have these kinds of conversations is just our lack of any cultural sort of dialogue um, about, you know, that couples sleeping together is actually a behavior that occupies a major portion of our lives and of our coupled existence. And there really are no shoulds or sort of anything in stone as to, you know, what every couple sort of needs to or should do, but rather like anything in a relationship you know, if you're going to spend that much time um, engaged in a behavior with your partner, well, it stands to reason that you should have a conversation about what's working and what's not working. But because there's so much stigma attached to the marital bed, there's just the assumption that all couples uh, from the time they fall in love and, you know, are, you know, are together, you know, sleep their sleep habits should be perfectly compatible. And that's not always the case. Um, and again, this could be for very happy couples. And there's also, there's a lot of strategies to overcome um, the various ways that their sleep can be, you know, incompatible. The topic that I'm asked to speak about a lot is the the decision, the arrangement of sleeping apart, um, which for some couples absolutely works, um, particularly if it's the only way that they're both going to get the sleep they need. But, you know, there's lots of challenges that couples face. Maybe it's having a blanket stealer or, you know, a sheet stealer or very, you know, widely different preferences for temperature. Now there's also a lot of practical solutions short of sleeping in separate beds um, that can overcome some of those challenges when you come to the, the fact that we are all individuals, you know, who sleep 
And if you're trying to share a bed with someone, again, that's a lot of time and it's a critical health behavior. So you want to do everything you can for you both to be sleeping your best. It, you know, you may have, indi- you are individuals, so you may have individual preferences. Again, now there are practical strategies to allow couples to continue to share the bed if that's their choice. Again, no one else should say it's the right thing or wrong thing to do, but then also to meet meet their own individual preferences, whether it be different levels of firmness on each side of the bed, uh, whether it be separate um, bedding uh, for each partner. There's a, it's called the Scandinavian method when um, couples who share a bed actually have um, separate um, bedding for each sides. So these are way practical strategies to sort of overcome the fact that, you know, just because you love a human being doesn't mean, you know, you're going to be completely matched in all aspects of your preferences for sleep. Yeah. I, this um, idea of the, uh, what is it? Two twin beds. Mm-hmm. And then, so you still get the, because I think there's a lot of um, sort of parasympathetic benefit from being next to being someone dead. in the night, right? So that's, there's, there's be, plus. yeah, particularly yeah. in a good quality relationship. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> assuming there's that. If you're, uh, like, if you're sleeping with the enemy, believe me, that fight or flight response is, uh, okay. be really, or if you, if you just had a conflict with your spouse, uh, you know, it's actually your sympathetic system is maybe in overdrive, <laughs> but yes, with in a good quality relationship, <laughs> one of the benefits is that it can be soothing uh, to be next to your partner. It also can help um, stimulate the release of the hormone oxytocin, which is the love hormone, which um, facilitate it has anxiolytic properties and can be sort of um, uh, sedating. Um, so these are all good thing. There's definitely reason for physical closeness at bedtime, um, the Scandinavian method, as as you're, as you're mentioning, which is can be two twin beds put together equals a king, um, allows couples to sort of have that closeness when they want. It also gives the appearance of a king size bed, which again, given that there's a lot of stigma around separate beds, nobody wants to look like I love Lucy. That sort of gives the appearance of a king size bed because you can have one common you know, comforter or overlay, but each partner has their own mattress, their own bedding. Um, and, and so that that's a compromise that um, is, I think, increasingly being used by by couples who really do have different preferences for their bedding and um, et cetera, but they want, they want to sort of physically be in the same bed. So we've mentioned this sort of um, bell curve of sleep types. There's also this, um, you know, circadian rhythms and, you know, we tend to think of circadian rhythms as mostly being influenced by light, um, right? Like bright light in the morning, dim light in the evening is usually best. Um, but you mentioned there's like sort of a social aspect, like a social circadian. What what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So, well, again, our circadian rhythms are sort of these are intrinsically sort of based clocks um, that, you know, the master clock is in the suprachiasmic nucleus of the brain. And that sort of regulates all sorts, the timing of all sorts of functions in the body, including you know, sleep-wake cycles, but as well, it also has effects on our blood pressure regulation, our hormones, et cetera. There's actually circadian clock genes in virtually every cell in our body, just to sort of give an example of how important sort of these intrinsic clocks are. Um, and, you know, sort of they run sort of regardless, actually, of um, the light-dark cycle. However, 
the way our circadian rhythms get sort of locked in, or the word is entrained to a 24-hour cycle is really through primarily through our exposure to light. So light in the morning cues the circadian rhythm. Okay, now this is time to be awake and alert. Low light conditions in the evening help to stimulate the release of the hormone melatonin, which signals sleep onset. Okay, so light is the primary what's called zeitgeber or timekeeper, um, which ooh, helps. To ooh, ooh, I love yeah, that word. Wait, word. Wait, wait, wait. Um, zeit, zeit, what? Zeitgeber. Zeitgeber. Z-E-I-T-G-E-R. Oh, that sounds so awesome. Yes, it's, I am, it's a I am the zeitgeber. Yeah, <laughs> zeitgeber. <laughs> um, so light is a primary zeitgeber, uh, but there are social zeitgebers as well, and, and, and that includes things like when we have our meals, when we have first contact with another human being, um, you know, you know, when we sort of go to work or, and, and when we go to bed. So these social zeitgebers and when we have, when we engage in physical activity, physical activity can also become a zeitgeber if it's consistently um, uh, enacted. And so it's, this is also a really fascinating area that my research is sort of starting to dive into um, of looking at couples and couples as they age. Because one of the things that happens, um, unfortunately, when when people, um, when individuals start to face cognitive decline or showing signs of um, mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's disease, is these social rhythms um, start to really sort of go off track. Um, and some of the work that I'm now doing um, with colleagues at the University of Utah is to look at, you know, how could we potentially create some interventions by incorporating the partner, the spouse, to sort of reinforce those social zeitgebers to kind of create some, you know, timekeepers throughout the day, um, which help to sort of regulate the individual. They give some sort of benchmarks throughout the day, which is really important not only for sleep and alertness, but also for mood and cognitive functioning. So sort of recognizing the role that our social interactions play, they're not just, they don't just make us feel good or, you know, nice to have somebody around, but they actually help to tell our brains, okay, you know, what is daytime? When is it time to be alert and awake? And when is it time, you know, to, to, to go to sleep? So um, it, it's a really interesting um, sort of role of social relationships. It's also really interesting to see some of the unfortunate consequences we see, for instance, in bereavement when people lose a spouse. One of the, and we see higher rates of illness and depression, of course, and and reductions in well-being. Partly, what's happening is not, you know, not only, of course, the, the grief and the loss, but it's the removal of these important zeitgebers that helped to set the rhythm of the day. Right? You know, when you see your spouse in the morning, when you have breakfast or dinner with them, uh, these are important cues to the brain of predictability and sort of what happens next. Um, You mentioned melatonin and I have an issue with melatonin, but. Oh, uh, then we're in the same camp. (laughs) (laughs) When I go into the, you know, CBS. Tell me your issue. I think it's absolutely madness for people to be taking these massive, massive quantities of melatonin. I, um, but. Maybe I'm just. I couldn't agree with you know. more. Oh, okay. We see, you know, ten milligram doses yeah. of melatonin, oh which is a supra physiologic dose. 
In fact, well, there's a couple, there, uh, there's several uh, issues that I have with melatonin and, and I'm not alone. The, the field is, is really in consensus. And unfortunately the market has sort of, uh, sort of driven decisions instead of, um, the scientific evidence. Um, melatonin was never intended as a sleep aid. It is a chronobiotic, meaning a time shifter, right? So it is very effective um, uh, at helping with, sh- with jet lag and certain and sometimes with shift work disorder because these are issues of misalignment of circadian rhythms with the desired or uh, uh, sleep schedule, right? So it's a time shifter. It is not a sleeping pill. And yet that is how it is prescribed. Furthermore, this lack of regulation that's allowed, you know, 10 milligram doses when the only available evidence on the, the, the effectiveness of melatonin, again, as a jet lag, as a time shifter, not as a sleeping pill, the existing studies demonstrate that the effective dose of melatonin is in the range of 0.5 to two milligrams. So why is it that we would be putting supraphysiologic doses of a hormone that our bodies naturally produce? You know, what is that doing to, you know, our brains and our biology? Not to mention, what is it doing to the brains and biology of people whose brains are still developing? Because unfortunately, melatonin is increasingly being given to children and adolescents on a long-term basis. And there are no long-term studies of the effects of taking an exogenous hormone that our body um, naturally produces, this particular exogenous hormone, over time um, in a developing, you know, hormonal climate. So it's a real concern to me as well. And there's just so much misinformation about it. And I just want to emphasize those two words you said, exogenous hormone. So this is not like... You know, like I take magnesium at night, yeah. like that's a very different ball game than yeah. taking a hormone, which is affecting all kinds of systems in your body. Right. I mean, it blows my mind. I will talk to parents who are, you know, rigid about, you know, organic grass fed, non, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, treated, you know, uh, meat. And yet they're giving their children uh exogenous hormones that their bodies are naturally producing. And again, at levels that are often, you know, well out of the range of what our bodies can naturally produce. And again, I think that just gets back to our unfortunate cultural um, mindset that more always means better. (laughs) You know, that like, you know, a higher dose, if if a small dose works, well, a bigger dose is definitely going to work. Well, that's really not the case with hormones, you know, like, you know, if you're going to use it at all, well, first of all, look at the evidence, the evidence shows it's not effective, then why would you be taking it? But like, you'd probably want it to match what your body is naturally doing rather than sort of overwhelming it with and and also God only knows what else is in the products because you know they're they're really pretty poorly regulated. European countries, you need a prescription, by the way, for yeah. melatonin. So this is a uh, at least you know pretty specific to the United States. Yeah. First, I don't. Um, I if I take more, sort of my maximum dosage I can handle is about 0. 0.5. Mm-hmm. So which and you know I try and get like the most expensive 0.5 I can assuming that it's actually 0.5 mm-hmm. and not, and not five or whatever they decide to yeah. put in it. <laughs> um, but anything more than that, like the next day, I just, I feel like I'm drunk. 
Like yeah. I just, yeah. uh, it's, I think people also, yeah, tend to, yeah, I've heard lots of, I mean, a lot of people have strong reactions to melatonin. And I think there's also this misconception that natural necessarily equals safe. Oh, um, yeah. Right. And, and, you know, that's also not true. And I think, you know, we just have to be better educated and better consumers about this when we, when it comes to, you know, what we're putting in our body. And certainly if you're having to take anything nightly to support sleep, well, then I would say that's a sign to let's look for the other root causes. And if you have a clinical sleep disorder like insomnia, it's why, you know, you should, you should seek actual treatment because treatments exist. And the most effective treatment actually does not come in any pill form. It's a behavioral treatment called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Those who are just trying to optimize their sleep that don't have a clinical disorder, there's lots of behaviors one can engage in. Maybe they're not so sexy, um, but, you know, it, it doesn't require taking a pill. And if you have to take a pill to sleep well, well, then I would start thinking, okay, what's going on with my sleep and are what are the other what are other potentially more evidence-based strategies to actually improve my sleep i i sometimes um people notice my rigidity around sleep <laughs> they're like well what could it and some some people they come to me and they're like oh well i don't sleep well i don't do this that, and the other thing and then they tell me what they do before they go to bed and I, I, it's just like stop that and i i i tell people like don't crash the plane, <laughs> land yeah. the plane. The plane yeah. needs a ramp. <laughs> and that ramp is like an hour or two long. And you got to sort of slowly decelerate. You, you you can't go from, you know, watching some kind of crime thing to nope. I'm going to sleep now. It You may pass out, but, you know, two hours later, you're going to be wide awake. Yeah. And most likely, you know, you won't pass out because mm. as I said before, you know, sleep is not like a light switch process, no. it's a complicated mm -hmm. physiologic process that does require a yeah. slow descent. You cannot just tell your brain, okay, I've been activated <laughs> and stressed and, you know, aroused by, you know, something I'm watching or a fight I have with my spouse or work on my mind. And then I'm, I'm just going to shut it off. That's not how our brains were designed. We've got to sort of, there's got to be a, you know, slow descent. Um, I will say, I know you're a good sleeper and that's great. And, and I love that you're sleep obsessed. I will say for some people, such an obsession can go to, uh, and, and it's working for you. So like, it's all good. I'm always, you know, if it's working for you, that's great. I think some people who become sleep obsessed, it can mm. go to a negative oh, yes. um, place, yeah. which is, you know, I, you know, I, I, I tend to look towards that because I'm a clinician as well. And that's who comes to see me. Um, so, you know, and what I would tell them or, you know, to people who are listening, if you are also sleep obsessed and it's not working for you because you're thinking about sleep all the time, mm. you're worried about it and you're not sleeping well, then that, you know, that in itself can become a problem for some people, right. but, you know, it's really interesting of like, I mean, I think you have structured your life and you've prioritized prioritize sleep and you're practicing the behaviors that work well for you. And it's actually facilitating sleep. What unfortunately happens for some people who become sleep obsessed in kind of a negative way is that sleep just becomes so effortful, mm. right? And they're effortfully striving for sleep, like trying to do like a max press at the gym. And sleep is a very different process than like maximizing your, you know, athletic output. At the end of the day, we really have to have sleep come to us to fall into sleep rather, rather than actively working for it. 
Now, of course, yeah, there's things that we can do proactively, healthy behaviors to support good quality sleep. But if the mind starts to sense, oh, this is like this thing that I'm working for, it's like gearing up for a race. Well, when we gear up for a race, we have an adrenaline response, we have a cortisol response. So that's where the obsession can kind of go to the dark side and where people actually can have problems with sleep. And I often see this with, you know, the people who read the most sleep books, who, you know, have a lot of education about sleep. Unfortunately, they may be working too hard. It's the cognitive sort of effort that goes into it that can actually, unfortunately, work against you. And that's where some other strategies can be beneficial. Uh, Yeah, I'm sort of unusual in um, my, the pleasure I get out of my own metrics. Yeah. Um, That's just me. Uh, But I know some for like a lot of people won't stand on a bathroom scale because it's too, um, you know, triggering of obsession. Anxiety provoking. Yeah. Triggering. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think it's just like you do if. If you're one of those people, yeah, don't get it. Yeah, you got to figure get, out what works. It's, yeah. it's sort of like you yeah. know, sleep trackers. Some they can be very helpful. Yeah, first thing somebody asked me, you know, what do you think of my sleep tracker? Are, are they, you know, is it good for you? Well, how is it help? How, how does it feel to you? You know, does it help you modify your behaviors? Does it help you sort of notice? You know, oh, maybe I shouldn't have had that extra glass of wine. Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's somebody that you know it causes you to panic, to freak out, to worry that, you know, oh my gosh, my sleep tracker is, you know, telling me I didn't sleep well. Well, probably you knew you didn't sleep well. So you didn't need your sleep tracker to tell you it. And it was only amping up your anxiety, then it's really not working for you. But for other people, you know, you know, metrics are reinforcing and, um, you know, they can help sort of nudge along healthy behaviors without having that anxiety response. And I think that's what people also really have to start tapping into that, again, for many people, kind of tracking their sleep, having other biometrics can be really um, reinforcing. But if you're somebody who tends to, with whatever behavior, if it tends to produce more anxiety, well, then maybe that metric isn't working for you so much. Um, Yeah, as I um, say probably a couple of times on this podcast every week, everybody's N of one. And you just got to figure out what that N is. Like, yeah. does it work for you or it doesn't? Um, it, anyone who tells you everything is good for everyone, um, leave the room because <laughs> yeah. they're they're misleading you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, that's a major take home of my book of like, there is not a one size fits all sleeping strategy for all couples. And the more we ascribe to this belief, the more we're sort of pigeoning people and couples into strategies that may not work best for for them. And again, ultimately missing the point, which is let's all do a better job to prioritize sleep, to engage in the behaviors that we know are going to benefit sleep so that we can be better people because sleep is that powerful. Oh, absolutely. Um, And I want to, I just want to touch on a couple sort of like possible sleep problems. So um, uh, snoring, your partner snores. And um, this is generally, I understand the male who is the snorer and then statistically, but women also are snorers. (laughs) um, And then women, as you mentioned, tend to be more vigilant um, about the evening. And so um, this can be a bad combo. Um, So uh, first, um, how do you get the guy to stop snoring? Well, the, the the first thing to notice um, is that snoring could be, you know, it's definitely a nuisance, but it's not just a nuisance. It could be a sign of a significant sleep disorder um, known as 
obstructive sleep apnea. So the first thing I tell, you know, spouses or partners is, you know, if your partner is driving you mad with their snoring, use that as a strong impetus to get them to a doctor to, you know, get, get tested to see if they have sleep apnea because it's a significant health condition. Um, Next, um, there are, you know, people short of it being sleep apnea. First of all, there's treatment for sleep apnea. Some people are just simple snorers. So they don't have apnea. They're just snorers. And there's lots of reasons for that. Alcohol is not your friend if you're a snorer and it's not your partner's friend because alcohol will make the snoring worse. Um, There are some positional strategies um, people can do um, sort of uh, making themselves more upright in bed can help uh, reduce the snoring. Um, making sure there's no sort of nasal blockage or anything like that, making sure the room is um, humidified. And for the partner, this is where things like earplugs can come into play, um, you know, or Bose, you know, sound um, eliminating uh, headphones if they're comfortable enough. And for some couples, that is often, that's a primary reason why some couples will choose to sleep apart because the sleeping together becomes so frustrating and one partner is becoming increasingly resentful that it's really not benefiting the relationship anymore. And for that couple, you know, sort of problem solving, well, if we're going to sleep apart, how do we still maintain our closeness and intimacy that we would have had if we were spending the whole night together? But, you know, can we prioritize that at different times? So there's absolutely ways to problem solve around that. Um, those things that I mentioned, I, I don't have any affiliation with the with the Bose company, um, yeah. but but they're called uh, sleep buds, okay, and, and they're designed to be worn inside your ear through the night, and they and just, they're comfortable to you. Oh, absolutely, and they yeah. play and they play this sort of soundtrack, okay. Um, um and those, um, I I don't know, I had them for like two years, and okay. if I don't have them at night, I I throw a little toddler fit. Um, because <laughs> I just love them so. Part much. Of your routine, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, routine. With any sort of um, earplugs, earbuds, comfort is king, and that's an individual thing. Um, and I, you know, what I say to people, because you know, some people will say, "Oh, I've tried earplugs, I can't do it. Like they're so uncomfortable." Or buds. There, there's a gazillion varieties out there from you know cheapy drugstore ones that you could get for you know less than $2 to very expensive ones. And what may work for one person may not necessarily work for another, but blocking out noise is certainly a good strategy to support um, better quality sleep, whether the noise is coming from your partner um, or somewhere else in the home or outside, let's say if you live um, in an urban environment or an environment where there's um, otherwise noise outside. And um, to me, it's all stimulation. Like I I feel Mm -hmm. like as as a human, I'm I'm designed to be living in a cave on alert for the bear that may come and eat me. So okay. I have to be like, I just want to tune out all like the, the eye mask, the ears, the bed not moving, like everything. No, yes. I don't want any input. Interesting. Where some people kind of need white noise or some other mm. distraction because going too internal then becomes anxiety provoking oh, yeah. or it's just uh-huh. too quiet. So it's again, sleep is very individualistic and it's about finding what works for you. Let, let's just stop on, uh, I want to um, touch on one last thing, which is um, CPAP machines. Okay. And um, so. For the treatment of apnea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which um, apnea is a very, very serious thing and you should not take that lightly at all. Um, so some people, um, need CPAP machines. 
mm-hmm. which is a sort of like medieval thing that I don't know. All the Darth Vader masks sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know really a nice way to describe it. Um, but so how does say um, your partner needs a CPAP? Like how do you, how does that get negotiated? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, actually, I have a um, study that's just uh, concluding right now, again, I'm at the University of Utah that we call WePAP because it's the first couples-based intervention um, to help couples adjust to one partner who gets diagnosed with apnea and is starting their CPAP, recognizing that sleep, as we said at the beginning of the show, is interdependent. And, mm-hmm. you know, first of all, it's often the bed partner that is the one sort of who drags her spouse into the sleep clinic to get diagnosed. So she's a primary motivator or he's a primary motivator, but she's also there, you know, for the adjustment to CPAP. And what I will tell everyone is that the adjustment to CPAP is just that. It is an adjustment. It is not a simple thing that just automatically, you know, you're going to get your device and you're going to feel comfortable with it and you're going to start using it every night for eight hours, which is what we want you to do because it's that important for your health. It does take time to get used to it. There's actually a variety of different mask types. They're not all the full face types. There's all sorts of adjustments that can happen. And I think, unfortunately, people don't realize how much troubleshooting often has to be done. And having a partner there to support you is actually, we're finding a real benefit to also be sort of your advocate in dealing with, um, you know, your doctor, as well as the device company to, to say, if one's you know, style of mask is not working, try something else. Is it a mask fit problem? Is it a uh, sort of um, sort of moisture problem? Um, because it can be very drying. There's lots of strategies. And what we're finding is that engaging a couple together as part of the solution, that this becomes a we problem instead of a you problem, that that's actually really benefiting on the patient's adherence and their sleep um, to as they adjust to this new medical device. So, um, you know, I think it really is a couple level issue. In talking to couples, there's also concern about, oh, it's so not sexy to wear a mask. So, I, you know, we'll never have sex again if my partner's putting on Depends a mask. Depends on the people. I mean, some people totally. you know, and could by be a the thing way, for them. It's also not sexy to be sleep deprived, no. right? And that's what partners tell us is that, you know, they are so fed up with being sleep deprived from listening to their partner gasp for air and choke and snore throughout the night and scary to watch your partner do that. They're delighted to have this now very sort of constant noise in the background as opposed to the the loud snoring and gasping for air. And they're thrilled that they have their partner back because one of the things that CPAP does is, you know, it improves the, 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 the patient's ability to sleep. Therefore they have more energy during the day you're both sleeping better. Uh, your moods are better. You have more energy, you know, and yeah, in fact, you know, sex lives can improve because of CPAP. And so for many couples, you know, we talked to couples in our study about really creating a new nighttime ritual where you preserve the time together, where you're able to talk and do the things before bed and have the mask going on be the last thing you do as a couple, because that it can be a barrier. So making sure that you preserve the time before the mask goes on, and that's sort of the final step. And then really incorporating it as part of, you know, this is this is something we do together because it does, it supports both of our sleep and therefore it supports our relationship. 
And I, I just, I, sometimes people are very um, resistant to um, CPAP machines. Yeah. Um, and I just want to say, like, I'm not a doctor. I don't, I don't give, sorry, I don't give medical advice, but from what I've read, um, it can be fatal. <laughs> so it's a really, really serious thing to get taken care of. Yeah, there's more and more, more research. I mean, certainly very severe sleep apnea can be fatal, but there's an, an emerging amount of research showing that untreated or poorly treated sleep apnea is a risk factor uh, for heart disease and even dementia. Um, and again, I think we're in a time where, you know, with an aging population, we all want to do everything we can to protect our brain health. And what happens with sleep apnea is like literally you stop breathing. So you're, yes. you know, <laughs> starving your brain of oxygen many times potentially throughout the night. So yeah, it may not be a pretty uh, device. It may not be your favorite solution. I understand the resistance, but it's worth working through. And it's, if you have a partner, yeah. work through it together because exactly. that support can be so important and it does affect both of you. That's right. That's right. And I, and I love that the way you pointed that out in the book, that it's like, it, it's a, it's a two person thing. Again, it's social, right? Yeah. It's yeah. it's not just the the one. Um, yeah. What, and, and it's a better strategy to support adherence because nobody likes to be, you know, have the, you know, be, you know, have their, somebody wagging their finger at them. You should be wearing your CPAP mask. No, but this is about us. You know, if you have a partner who has sleep apnea, this is right. a, you know, together problem. It's a we problem that, you know, you, you guys want to be in it together because it will benefit you both if the patient is, is adherent um, to the CPAP. And I think that that's sort of the overarching theme of your book is that it's about communication mm. between the two people because you're sharing this activity that's like a third of your life. Yeah. So you need to talk about it and you need to like, everybody needs to get their needs met here. Yes, yes. And, and finding s- strategies that are going to work for both of you because you're both going to be, you know, a well-slept partner is a better partner. And so it really is a pursuit that's worthwhile to engage in together. Wonderful. Wendy, it's so great to have you here. Oh, um, thank you so much. You ask wonderful questions and uh, we could go on and on. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything you want to leave our folks with? Anything I want to leave you with? Uh, well, here's a, just a quick exercise that I encourage couples to potentially consider um, as a part of their nighttime ritual, which is something that many people are lacking, um, having a wind down, but it's something you can do with your partner. It's called the high-low compliment technique. And it can oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. I read yeah. that in the book. Oh, I thought yeah, it was great. It, it's really yeah. sweet and it's effective. For, you know, it's, it's good for your sleep. It's good for your relationships. Uh, basically, you take turns, um, share some, a high point in your day, something good that happened, something that you felt good about. You share a low point in your day, maybe something that disappointed you that didn't go so well. And then you pay your partner a compliment. Do you say something that um, for which you feel grateful about your partner? This can last, you know, up, you know, no more than 15 minutes. You take turn, you each take a turn doing this. What this does, um, which is beneficial for both sleep and relationships, is an opportunity for emotional self-disclosure, which we know is good for relationships, good for sleep by sharing kind of what went through your day in a very brief way. Um, You're expressing gratitude to your partner, um, which is also uh, beneficial for sleep and relationships. And you're also just giving each other just uh, a sort of a ritualized opportunity to share and connect before bedtime. And that level of connection and feeling safe and secure before bedtime is one of the greatest benefits we can derive from our relationships, both for our sleep, as well as for our health overall. 
Absolutely. That's a wonderful way to wrap up. I love that. High, low compliment. Everybody just do that. Give it a try. Just just do it. Everybody just do that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Your book is called Sharing the Covers, Every Couple's Guide to Better Sleep. It's a great book. Um, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be with you. Take care now. Bye-bye. You as well. That was so great having Wendy on the show. I got to say, until I read her book, I hadn't really thought of sleep as a social activity, but of course it is. (laughs) And I love that piece of advice. High, low compliment. Can't go wrong with that. We're going to get to just try this in just a moment after a quick word from our sponsor. One of my challenges for 2023 is to incorporate a more consistent, more effective, impactful de-stressing program in my life. And, you know, I've been letting that slide a little bit the last four or five months. And because I use the Inside Tracker app, I can see that over time, the fluctuations in my cortisol level. And right now they're a little high. They're at 14.2 and I need to bring them down a little bit. But I can see in the past when I have been better and more consistent at doing things like breathing practice and yoga and stretching, how my cortisol levels are not as high because I've been tracking these over time. I take an inside tracker test four times a year so I can really see what's working and what's not. If you go to insidetracker.com slash ageist, you'll save 20% on all their products. This week's Try This is inspired by where I am right now, which is New York City. And in New York City, there's not a lot of cooking at home. There's a lot of eating out. And my suggestion is that if you're going to go to a restaurant, I have nothing against restaurants. I love going out to eat. But beforehand, plan what you're going to eat, which means check out the menu in the restaurant before you get there. Have a look at it. So then when you're there, you know exactly what you're going to eat. And you're also going to know if the food at the restaurant is exactly what you want. I was with somebody earlier this week and we were having dinner and she had already like studied the menu and she knew exactly what she was going to get because she had some dietary restrictions and she wanted to make sure that she could get what she wanted at the restaurant. So this week for Try This, plan ahead. Check out the menu before you get there and then you'll be all set before you arrive. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on the show today. As always, you have an opportunity to, guess what? Leave us up to a five-star review wherever you're listening to this. You can leave a comment. You can contact me directly, david at superage.com. Happy to connect you with any of our guests or answer any questions you may have. Everyone, have a wonderful week. We're going to have an episode coming up next week. You're going to like it. Take care now. 